It's Tuesday, November 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Once again, more good news on the vaccine front. AstraZeneca and Oxford University has released some early data saying their vaccine candidate, on average, is 70% effective against coronavirus. In some cases, depending on the dosing, it can be up to 90% effective. This vaccine candidate is also cheaper to make and can be stored at normal refrigeration temperatures. Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News, joins us for the latest vaccine results. Next, some doctors and nurses are calling it quits over the pandemic. Medical professionals are closing their practices or retiring early because of financial stress and also the mental exhaustion of trying to stay safe while coronavirus continues to spread unchecked in the country. Reed Abelson, health reporter at the New York Times, joins us for why some doctors are closing shop. Finally, President Trump's legal team has been a mess in fighting the outcome of the election, with no real evidence of widespread fraud. The legal team even took the steps to oust Sidney Powell, one of the lawyers who had appeared with Rudy Giuliani, and pushed some of the most outlandish conspiracy theories about the election, including that some Republican governors were part of the plot. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post, joins us for why they gave Powell the boot. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Intriguingly in the results, although the headline is 70% um, protection, uh, we do have a subgroup who got a half dose as the first dose and then a full dose as the second dose uh, where we saw 90% protection. Joining us now is Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Hey, it's good to be here. For the past few weeks, we've had some great news on the vaccine front regarding COVID-19. And again, this past Monday, we got some more stuff. The vaccine candidate from AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford said that their candidate reduces the risk of symptomatic COVID-19 by an average of 70.4%. They said it goes up to 90%. And we'll get into that in a minute because there's some interesting things surrounding that. But what are we hearing about this vaccine candidate? I think you're right. It, it seems like every Monday morning lately we've been getting vaccine news, which has been nice, right? I mean, we're all getting ready to start the week and we get a little dose of good news. Exactly. Um, so, right. So, li- like you said, this vaccine is being developed by AstraZeneca and University of Oxford over in the UK. And so this analysis is actually, it's actually an, an interim analysis, an early look at two different studies that they conducted, one in Brazil, one in the UK. It was about 11,000 participants. And yeah, on average, the efficacy here was 70.4%. So let's get into that because, and you did mention there was a two different arms of this study, one in the UK, one in Brazil, and they were using different dosing methods. I think in the UK, they were doing a half dose first, then a full dose. And in Brazil, they were doing two full doses each time separated by about a month, but they got different results on that. You're essentially correct, right? They have two different dosing regimens here. When the participants got two full doses of the vaccine spread out by one month apart, the efficacy was 62%, so a little bit lower than the average. When patients received a half dose initially and then received a full dose, the efficacy was 90%. So the question is that was initially raised by this is why would a starting with a half a dose and then going to a full dose, why would those results look better than when you got two full doses? And the answer to that question is not entirely clear yet. And it's even more confusing when we learned later in the day that 
actually this sort of half-dose, full-dose regimen that they're using was sort of a mistake. It came out of some dosing errors in the UK. And when they discovered this, this was months ago, when they discovered this in the clinical trial, they just continued with it. Interesting. it's a little bit confusing, and I think these are the, some of the things, some of the questions that still need to be answered, like to just sort of better accurately understand what the efficacy of this vaccine actually is. In the United States, we do have a trial going on. That one was put on pause for a little while, but I think they're going to make some changes to try to explore that half-dose, full-dose regimen here. AstraZeneca is running a large study in the United States with the same vaccine. That was the study that had been halted for a little while because of uh, a side effect that popped up in a single participant. They had to halt it and they had to get clearance to restart that study. That study is now restarted. So it looks like they may try to alter or amend the study design to kind of look at this half-dose, full-dose regimen to see what kind of efficacy they can get out of that here in the U.S. There are a lot of other pluses that go with this vaccine candidate as well, though. It's a lot easier to store. It's cheaper to make. So a lot of people are saying this could be really good for lower to middle income countries. But there's this kind of thing. Well, why would you know, why would we give people a vaccine that's only 70 percent effective versus one that's 95 percent effective like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine candidates? But as you mentioned at the very beginning, this is interim data. So this could change. These numbers could change still. Right. Yeah. These numbers can definitely change as we get more data. I mean, we're not looking at very many cases here that they're basing this analysis on. So the data could definitely change as they accrue more cases in the study. And, you know, look, it's difficult to compare vaccines against each other, even though everybody wants to do it. Right. Like you mentioned, the Moderna vaccine, you know, 95 percent efficacy. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, 95% efficacy. So on the very simplistic comparison, you look at those and say, wow, those are so much better than what we're seeing out of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But again, there are different types of vaccine. They're made differently. As you mentioned, there are advantages to the AstraZeneca vaccine in terms of storage, and it can be refrigerated. It's very easily shipped and stored just in in a standard refrigerator. So that's going to be beneficial for places where, you know, you can't do the deep freeze kind of storage that is required for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. It's also going to be a lot cheaper. So there's going to be hard, difficult choices that have to be made with these vaccines because I don't think that you can expect all the vaccines to have exactly the same efficacy or safety. So, you know, there's a a lot of people in this world who need to get vaccinated. Um, And (laughs) so there's going to be some decisions that will have to be made in that regard. Definitely. But like you said, everybody wants to make those direct comparisons, even though, you know, you can't really do that. This vaccine and the other two leading vaccines are made completely different. The other two use messenger RNA. This uses an adenovirus, which is also kind of a newer newer method, too, to traditional vaccines. But still, I mean, this is all very promising that these different types of vaccines are working. Maybe to put it in perspective, you know, when the FDA issued their guidelines for what they wanted to see out of a COVID vaccine, sort of the bottom end of the range was around a 50 percent efficacy. Right. That's kind of the minimum that they wanted to see. So here you have one. And we don't really know where the AstraZeneca is going to shake out. Is it 60, 70, you know, 80 percent? I mean, it's still well within the range of an approvable vaccine. Maybe it'll be 90. We don't know yet. But I mean, I think the thing you can take away from this is, is, you know, this is the third vaccine candidate and it looks encouraging. And, you know, I think that's what we all want to see as we try to emerge from this pandemic. Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
I think it's been a real challenge for smaller practices because they just didn't have the equipment. And even now, they still have trouble getting what they need to keep everyone safe. Joining us now is Reed Abelson, health reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Reed. Thank you. I wanted to talk about how our doctors and healthcare workers are faring throughout this pandemic. Uh, obviously, they've been through a lot, a lot of long hours, a lot of stress. But even the people that are working on COVID patients, beyond that, doctors that have ha- opened their own practices have been struggling a lot too. You know, a lot of people aren't going to their normal doctors for fear of catching COVID. And even for them, the stressors of keeping healthy, just staying afloat in their practice. There's been so much going on. It's not just doctors, it's nurse practitioners also. Reed, you wrote a story about how this is affecting them and how a lot of them are calling it quits. Tell us a little bit about it. People forget sometimes that a lot of doctors are small businesses. And so the combination of just the stress of trying to keep a practice open having enough protective equipment when there aren't as many patients coming in has been really tough for a lot of doctors and nurses. And um, what I found is that there's a sense that a lot of practices have closed. A lot of doctors decided to retire early, whether to take care of family members or because they were worried about their own health. So you're starting to see people leave the profession. Yeah, there was a recent survey of over 3,500 doctors by the Physicians Foundation, and they found that maybe about 16,000 practices could be closing or could have closed already. That's just a lot of people. And you mentioned PPE and protective equipment. We know that was a huge issue for everyone, really. But for a lot of these small businesses, as you mentioned, these small practices that aren't attached to huge hospital systems— I mean, it was especially difficult for them to get all that PPE. They would really have to, I mean, no lobbying power uh, bigger than themselves. They'd have to get out there and find all that stuff. One doctor talked about going on eBay and another doctor said, you know, she didn't think she can continue for a time because she didn't feel like she could safely practice because she couldn't find, you know, masks and gloves. I think it's been a real challenge for smaller practices because they just didn't have the equipment. And even now, they still have trouble getting what they need to keep everyone safe. Tell me a little bit about uh, the burnout factor. Because even before the pandemic hit, we had been seeing stories about doctors just getting this burnout, nurses, the same thing too. But this probably just really amplified a lot of that. I think that's true. I think part of it is just the stress, again, of the pandemic, which everyone feels. But there's a sense that month after month, physicians and nurses are really under tremendous stress. And there was another survey that said that, you know, many of them just were really sort of at their wits end. And, you know, I talked to one uh, nurse practitioner. She has been doing this for 14 years, but this time she just felt as if there was no end in sight and she's not sure she's going to stay in medicine. She's leaving her job for a few months to see what to do. Yeah. And some of the people that she spoke to, what are their plans to do after this? I mean, they went through a lot of schooling to be doctors and nurses even. And if they're leaving that or retiring early, what are their plans? Some are just going to retire early and potentially, you know, watch. um, I mean, one one doctor talked about uh, needing to watch her daughter's who is also in healthcare, her daughter's two small children. You know, one doctor suggested maybe she might do telemedicine because she could 
have more control over that. But I think, you know, others are just trying to figure out what to do. And it is it is just very stressful. And it's particularly for those doctors and nurses who had seen a rise in cases before and then to watch them come up again, I think has just been very, very difficult. And this is not just about the doctors themselves. This is a disruption to the patients. If their local clinic or local office closes down, they might not pick one up as quickly. And and then people start putting off their own health because of things like this. So it, it could have a trickle down effect on that front. I did want to ask one more thing. You know, the medical community is also gearing up and uh, really starting a PR campaign to get people to start wearing masks. I know I saw that there was a couple of videos and, and things going out recently where they're just imploring people to practice all the safety precautions and mask wearing being uh, chief among them. I think as hospitals fill back up, I've talked to a number of nurses in particular, but also doctors who are just basically begging the public to take as many steps to be safe, whether wearing masks in particular, to try and curb the increase in cases because, you know, they're tired. They've been working so hard for so many months. It's just, it's so disheartening and and so horrible to see the cases go up so quickly. Reed Abelson, health reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The president has had an opportunity to access the courts. And I said to you, you know, George, starting at 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning, if you've got the evidence of fraud presented. And what's happened here is, quite frankly, the conduct of the president's legal team has been a national embarrassment. Joining us now is Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Of course. The Trump legal team has been suffering loss after loss in court recently in their efforts to try and fight the outcome of the election. We've seen a lot going on from Rudy Giuliani melting on stage and doing pressers in front of uh, landscaping companies. It's been a pretty wild ride, you know, alleging widespread voter fraud despite any real true evidence of it. But over the weekend, we saw kind of one of the lawyers on this team, uh, you know, loosely associated with the team, however you want to put it, take a hit. This is uh, uh, Sidney Powell she was basically being distanced from from the legal team after alleging some even more crazier allegations. So, Philip, help us walk through all of what's going on with the president's legal team. Sure. So it's pretty clear that Sidney Powell was enmeshed in the legal team. President Trump himself had touted her as being part of his very capable group that was going to be guiding this. Essentially what happened is immediately after the election, he had some real lawyers, real actual law firms filing cases on his behalf, none of which alleged the sort of fraud that Giuliani has since been talking about or Trump himself was talking about, obviously because there isn't any evidence that that occurred. Those lawyers dropped off over time after losing cases and after it became apparent that uh, they were being asked to do the impossible. So the team got narrowed down to Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, who'd worked with this campaign, Sidney Powell, preeminently among them. Powell, it's worth noting, had come from defending Michael Flynn, uh, where she, Michael Flynn sort of changed lawyers midstream. Powell encouraged him to retract his guilty plea in the, in the whole Russia probe thing that he was involved in. Her work for Flynn was also sort of suspect, and she's been tied to QAnon, and you know, there are all these reasons that right. think it was an odd choice in general. I know I'm giving you more background than you actually asked for, but it's important to have that context, because then she comes, joins the legal team, uh, stands a lot alongside Rudy Giuliani last week at this press conference, and really does make truly bizarre allegations about what happened, but allegations which are no less 
wrong than the ones that are being made by Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) She went on to sort of attract a lot of attention for what she said, and I think that's probably what doomed her. Yeah, I mean, part of what she said, and, and, you know, uh, I think one of the big parts is that she started saying that there's uh, Republican governors, like uh, I think it was Republican Governor Brian Kemp, saying that he might have been involved in some of this. I think those were kind of those steps that took it a little too far. But, I mean, her overall thing, and help me walk through this part of it, too, just because, you know, you have to understand what it is. She's alleging some elaborate conspiracy that could include the former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, who died in 2013, that's connected with these Dominion voting systems, that these were changing all sorts of votes from President Trump to Joe Biden. So this is kind of the overarching thing. And now she was saying that, you know, some of the governors, Republican governors, were also taking kickbacks, payments to help with this whole effort. So her theory was was that, yes, that there are these voting machines that could be manipulated to change voting results and that people paid for the privilege to have that done and that this was tied back to Venezuela. That's generally her argument. It's total and utter nonsense from start to finish. I mean, in from the standpoint that the Dominion machines weren't used as widely as she claims to the fact that they don't have the capability that she alleges to the fact that it doesn't make any sense that if the whole point is they're committing this fraud by changing ballots, why do they need to do this? They have these electric machines in the first place. To the whole point about Venezuela, there was a company called Smartmatic, which was formed by Venezuelan interests that owned a different company, then gave up that company, which Dominion later bought. That's the connection to Venezuela. Wow. I mean, so it's not even any <laughs> sort of direct link. It's just all absolute garbage. And not only is it absolute garbage, but it's obviously garbage. In the same way that the allegations, I, you know, I hasten to bring it back to Giuliani, everything Giuliani said is similarly garbage, but is less sort of bizarre and outside the box than what Powell's been alleging. I mean, with Giuliani, it's a lot of, hey, we have the evidence, but we're not going to show it to you. And, you know, everything falls apart. And to that point also, you know, uh, Fox News, who has been kind of uh, touting some of this stuff, Tucker Carlson on that network gave Sidney Powell the chance to come on the show and explain it. He asked for evidence. She didn't supply it. And then he had to go on air and say, well, there is no evidence there. So, you know, there's a lot kind of going back and forth. What did the legal team actually say about, or, you know, when they tried to distance themselves from her? I mean, it was just sort of a curt statement saying that she wasn't part of the team. She was sort of working on her own behalf. They left it unclear whether or not they were trying to allege that she had never worked with the legal team, which obviously is hard to defend, or whether they were saying they'd sort of cut her loose at that point. Your point about Fox News is important. I think one of the issues here is Tucker Carlson very much wanted her to be presenting him with something he could use, right? He has been absolutely amplifying a lot of the other claims, including these nonsense claims about dead people having voted. He got called out for one such incident in which the person wasn't at all dead and he had to apologize on air. He wanted this to be true. And I think part of the challenge that Powell had is Giuliani's been playing this game for a long time. He's made a lot of appearances on a lot of cable news networks. He knows how to say just enough to have people consider him to be somewhat credible without actually revealing that he doesn't have any evidence undergirding what he's saying. Powell, I don't think, knew how to do that. And so I think she was sort of presented with what, in a lot of other contexts, someone from Trump's team could come to Fox News and say, hey, hey, we've got these allegations we want to raise. Here's just enough to keep you on the hook and then get on air. Powell, I think, just didn't know how to play that game, and we landed where we are. Philip Bump, national correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Divers produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.